This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thanks very much, Vodivangsa. Fellow Order members, as you've just heard, I returned about nine months ago now from a retreat lasting over three years, uh, living in a wooden circus wagon in the Auvergne in France. And it was really, I feel very privileged to have had that time. It was a wonderful opportunity to focus intensively on the Dharma and on meditation. And in particular, it was a wonderful opportunity to let go of identity, to not have to be anybody in particular, to let go of the stories I tell myself, particularly about myself, the pasts and futures that I create for myself. It was an opportunity to let go of self-reference, to some extent at least, and to enjoy the simple awareness of the present moment. Now I spent hours and hours a day in my circus wagon meditating, but I was also connected with a little group. There were four of us. And regularly, Lama Lundrup would come and uh, give us advice and guidance. And early on in the retreat, one of the pieces of advice that he gave us was Just let go of projects. Let go of any kind of projects. You're just here to meditate and practice and to just be. So don't get into doing projects of any kind. He kept emphasizing this. Uh, But even on an intensive meditation retreat, you can always find, or I can always find, little projects to do. so for me, it was often you know, little Dharma study projects or something like that. For others in the group, it might be you know, some kind of gardening, planning project or something of that kind. But despite him putting this to us very strongly, over the time, all four of us found ourselves sneaking in little projects into our intensive sort of meditation schedule. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with projects per se. A lot of life is sort of made up of projects and nothing much creative would happen without them. They're just a necessary, helpful part of life. But in those special circumstances of retreat, being asked to let go of projects made us aware of our compulsion to engage in them. We were driven to do projects. So as we did our best, as I did my best, to work against this tendency to fill my time with little projects, it became clear to me that the basic project that I was constantly wanting to pick up and do was the ego project. The project of maintaining a sense of myself as inherently existent. Because a project, big or small, 
gives you a sense of direction and it gives you a sense of a future. You're sustaining yourself through time. There's the project, but there's also the doer of the project, the project manager. <laughs> so what I think we all realized was that the projects didn't just give us something to look forward to, which was very nice in itself. They gave us someone to look forward to, which was even better. Good old familiar me. They filled the space of just being with all kinds of little bits of doing and busyness, which helped us to avoid any uncomfortable encounters with the open dimension of being, in which we might find ourselves, as Aya Kamer puts it, being nobody, going nowhere. During this weekend, we're focusing on spiritual receptivity. And you can, you can see spiritual re receptivity in different ways. You can see it as being receptive to all the aspects of the spiral path, ethics, meditation, insight, wisdom, receptive to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Uh, but often how I explain it to myself is that spiritual receptivity is receptivity, an awareness that's receptive to what's beyond the ego project, beyond constant reference back to a fixed sense of self and all its concerns and demands. As you'll know, our system of practice in Sri Ratna, you can look at it in different ways. The, the way in which we've looked at it for a long time is as a path. So going from integration to positive emotion and so on. But you can also see it as a mandala. And in the mandala approach, spiritual receptivity is right in the center. So this suggests that at the heart of the spiritual life is this open, receptive awareness that's not seeing everything in terms of its use value for the self, but that values and appreciates and enjoys things and people and qualities just for their own sake. And when this open, receptive awareness turns towards experience, it opens to life in all its richness, recognizing, as someone we all know puts it, life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. Being at the center of the mandala, this open, receptive awareness is then supported by the four sides, by integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, and spiritual rebirth. Although actually maybe that metaphor of support isn't quite right, as spiritual receptivity isn't separate from them. It pervades them all. They're the areas in which spiritual receptivity functions. Without it, there would be no path and no mandala. So for integration, that requires openness to our actual experience rather than our concepts about it. In the mindfulness of breathing, say, we move closer and closer to the actual experience of the breath, away from just ideas, and living in the sort of control tower of our heads. 
And integration also requires openness and receptivity to the different aspects of spiritual life, to ethical values, for instance. Response to spiritual qualities. And then positive emotion also requires receptivity. It requires receptivity to ourselves and increasingly to other people, to other forms of life. Receptivity becomes empathy so that we feel deeply being open to all forms of life. We see how we all are in the same boat. We all long for freedom. We all long not to suffer. We're all growing older day by day. We're all going to die. And it could be today. We just don't know. So positive emotion requires that receptivity. And spiritual death, insight into reality, involves an open receptivity to how things really are. Which also involves curiosity and questioning the assumptions that we bring to our experience. Including all the assumptions about the me that's having the experience. And I put an article in the May Shabda called The Unexamined Self, exploring some of that. And then spiritual rebirth requires deep receptivity, profound openness to what goes completely beyond our everyday experience. Receptivity to the teaching and example of Buddhist Shakyamuni, to the spiritual influence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and to the Dharmakaya, to reality itself. It involves throwing open the shuttered windows of our little ego hut and allowing the light and also the rain of blessings of the Dharma to enter in. So spiritual receptivity is central to all aspects and all stages of spiritual life. And the main practice to enable it to unfold and flower in our lives is just sitting. So I want to spend most of my talk on just sitting before ending with a couple of more general points about spiritual receptivity. Now just sitting, as we know, is a practice in which there's no particular focus of concentration. We allow the mind to open and to relax. And we just sit, turning towards whatever arises. Whatever arises in our experience in each moment with an open heart. And just sitting is the simplest of all spiritual practices, if you can call it a practice. All spiritual practice involves creating a gap between feeling and craving in the Nidana chain, between Vedana and Trishna. No gap of awareness, no spiritual practice. And within that gap, once you've created that gap of awareness, spiritual practice usually involves doing something, such as using an antidote, for instance. But just sitting involves creating that gap of awareness and just relaxing into it. That's all you do. There's just awareness and letting go. Awareness and relaxation. 
And that relaxed awareness allows the gap to grow so that the mind becomes more and more spacious and clear. And that relaxed, spacious awareness is then no longer identified with its contents. In that gap of awareness, thoughts may arise, but thoughts aren't a problem in themselves. It's being identified with the thoughts that's really the the problem, the issue. So this relaxed awareness, open-hearted and patient, creates the conditions for all other spiritual qualities to arise. Now, although, in essence, just sitting is as simple as can be, actually, when people say that they're practicing just sitting, they mean quite a lot of different things by it. Uh, Yeah, just sitting proper is just complete openness to whatever experiences arise in the moment. However, often, as a way into that open mode of functioning, people use some degree of focus, some degree of directedness for the attention, so that it doesn't just become lost in the flow of experience. So, for instance, you can focus on uh, sound, say. You just take your awareness out to the furthest sound you can hear, and yes, your, your mind expands, but there's still a directedness. You're, you're still not completely just sitting in that pure sense. Or you can use the breath. During my long retreat, I spent quite a lot of time practicing just sitting, but focusing a little bit of my attention on the awareness below the abdomen. So I just kind of breathe in down below the abdomen, and I completely relax that area. I mean, we could do a little bit now, just for 10 seconds or something. Just breathe into that area under your navel, and just really let it go, just really relax like, uh, like one of those big sort of Chinese Buddhas with a big sort of belly, or if you ever saw the Jungle Book, like Baloo the Bear. Just really relaxed, easy breathing down under the navel. So I I'd, I'd put my attention there, and that gave my awareness an anchor. And then once that was established, I just sort of, as it were, throttle back from that. I just maybe have like 10% of my awareness still there. Just so I was, I had that that link, that, that anchor for my attention. And all the rest could then just be completely open to what was going on. So if you want, you can spend the rest of the talk with 10% of your awareness just under your navel and just yeah, listen to me with that sense of, of connectedness. So, yeah, when people talk about just sitting, sometimes they mean what I would think of as a kind of partial just sitting, where, yes, they're open to their experience, but actually there is some kind of focus and directedness. Um, And also there are different levels to just sitting, inevitably. Uh, Recently, Subuti gave a talk where he came up with five different levels of just sitting. I'm not going to explain them all, but just to give you a sense, he talked about just settling, just waiting, just watching, just enjoying, and just sitting proper. So 
yeah, as well as different ways of approaching just sitting, there are all these different levels. And just sitting proper is the practice or non-practice to which all others lead and in which they culminate. For instance, in the six element practice, in the first four stages, you give up identifying with the body. In the fifth stage, you give up identifying with its territory. And in the last stage, you relinquish, you give up, you let go, all the contents of consciousness, all those thoughts and memories and fantasies and feelings and so on, which are all the reference points of a fixed self. And what's left when you do that is just sitting. There's just open awareness with no center because there's no reference points now, nothing, nothing to center around. Just open awareness, vivid and clear. On a less profound, more everyday level, just sitting is a necessary counterbalance to focused practice. In a funny way, all directed meditation, all meditation in which you're asking your mind to function within a structure, all practice where you're trying to move from point A to point B, even if point A is first dhyana and point B is second dhyana, involves some degree of tension for the mind. So it's essential to have some time in your practice where you're not making an effort to do something or to become anyone, however spiritual. And this open awareness, this just sitting, with nothing to do and nowhere to go, is deeply relaxing and healing and refreshing for the mind. I sometimes come across people who've been doing focused, directed, structured practice over many years, even decades, who at some point just encounter increasing resistance to meditation. Sometimes they've even more or less abandoned their practice because of it. And talking to them, it seems to me that in some cases, they're suffering from a kind of mental fatigue. They've been trying to do the practice again and again and again in a certain kind of way. They've been trying to force themselves to meditate within a certain structure, which is no longer appropriate for them. They've outgrown it. They've gone beyond that phase. And carrying on trying to, you know, very faithfully, very loyally, to make that effort, uh, yeah, they, they end up with a kind of fatigue, a kind of resistance. And I think often that kind of problem could have been avoided if they'd also been practicing just sitting as a counterpart to those structured practices. We need both. We need, yes, a sense of I'm doing this practice in order to move towards enlightenment. But also we need the counterpart of that. It's... Well, we've been practicing the sevenfold puja in this room. Who knows how many years it would be if we had it all together. And within the sevenfold puja, we've been reciting the Heart Sutra. 
And within the Heart Sutra, we say, not even wisdom to attain. Attainment, too, is emptiness. Now, at some point in your practice, that has to mean something in practice. Sooner or later. So just sitting and spiritual receptivity are the arena in which this comes in. So then you have a balance. You have structured, directed movement towards awakening, enlightenment, but then also you have just open, relaxed awareness, nowhere to go, nothing to do. So some order members have been practicing structured practice, no just sitting. But as we know from useful things like the order survey, many order members these days are at the other end of the spectrum. They're doing almost entirely unstructured practice. For them, just sitting isn't just a way of savoring the result of their focused practice, nor a counterbalance to it. Just sitting is the practice. And that's fine, as concentrating on just sitting may be a very beneficial phase in your spiritual development, or, done in the right overall context, may actually be pretty much all that some people need in terms of meditation. My one concern is that just sitting is subtle, and there are no special landmarks as there are, say, with the mindfulness of breathing. With the mindfulness of breathing, you notice occasionally if you lose count or you feel, yes, you're moving into dhyana or whatever it may be. Just sitting doesn't have signposts and landmarks. So it's possible to go down lengthy cul-de-sacs with it. I find it interesting that in Tibetan Buddhism, only a very few advanced practitioners only do just sitting. It's virtually always counterbalanced with periods of more active, directed practice. Also, those schools that put most emphasis on just sitting tend to be the ones that are most hands-on in terms of mentoring and making sure that people have guidance with meditation. And teachers who aren't in a position to supervise their students' meditation so closely often prefer to see them largely doing structured practice and that's because even if you don't do structured practice very well, at least, say you, you practice metabhavana, even if it doesn't go very well, at least there's some kind of positive karma that comes out of it, you know, unless it's a complete disaster. You know, there's something you know, that you emerge from in terms of karma to your benefit. Whereas unsupervised practice of just sitting can sometimes end up being largely a waste of time. So, having said that, I'd better explain and justify a little bit. I think that there are three broad categories of pitfall in just sitting. And I'm not saying let's not do just sitting at all. I'm saying let's do it, but being aware of these pitfalls. The first pitfall is what Lama Lundrup on our retreat used to refer to as klesha soup. In just sitting... You're simply receptive to your experience as it is. However, there always has to be that gap of awareness 
between feeling and craving. Otherwise, if there isn't enough awareness, enough clarity about what's going on, when you give your mind no structure, it simply does what it's been doing since beginningless time. It follows its habitual tendency to produce the clashes. And without enough awareness, they simply carry you off. They bear you away. Let's not look at where to. Now, being just carried off in that way isn't meditation. If you're identified with a negative tendency, then you're producing negative karma, and that can only end in tears. And this tendency to falling into Klesha soup, to just being carried off by habitual tendencies, is why I personally would never teach just sitting to beginners, except as a short period of, of just settling, just to, just to calm. Without some degree of integration and positive emotion, any prolonged just sitting is likely to be a recipe for Klesha soup. So on one side, that's the first pitfall, there's the mistake of, if you like, not intervening where necessary to avoid drowning in Klesha soup. And on the other hand, the second common pitfall is of intervening too much in just sitting. Because very often you feel, well, there's nothing special happening. It's not producing the results that you want or you expect. Sometimes this is just a manifestation of boredom and impatience, not being prepared to go through the level of just sitting that Sabuti calls just waiting. You can have a bit of a sort of bardo experience before a sense of something deeper entering in. Sometimes it's because we have a too prescriptive, fixed idea of spiritual life. Our map of the spiritual path involves going up the spiral from joy to rapture and so on. And so we wrongly feel that nothing special states of mind in just sitting must be signs that we're off track, which isn't necessarily the case at all. However, mostly, I think people tend to intervene inappropriately in just sitting because of a tendency to willed effort or willfulness. And for me, willed effort is the immediate outward manifestation of a deeper tendency that I tend to call spiritual ambition. So here we need to distinguish between genuine spiritual aspiration and its near enemy, spiritual ambition which looks like spiritual aspiration, but isn't. Genuine spiritual aspiration is the longing to be enlightened or awakened in order to be free of suffering for your own sake and for the sake of all that lives. Spiritual ambition speaks the same language, but although it looks the part Spiritual ambition is actually ego-based. It's the ego project transferred to the spiritual realm. It's quite closely related to what Trungpa Rinpoche used to call spiritual materialism. And it often leads also to what's, I think these days, called spiritual bypassing, where you use your spiritual beliefs and your practice to avoid dealing with painful feelings and the next stage in your, your actual development. 
As it's ego-based, spiritual ambition is still focused on and concerned about me. And the telltale signs of spiritual ambition are that it's full of hopes and fears about the success or failure of your Dharma practice. Which looks very good, naturally. You know, you want your Dharma practice to succeed. You don't want it to fail. But if you look at what's driving that, you find that it isn't a sort of pure spiritual aspiration. It's, it's more about the ego. When you're suffering from spiritual ambition, you set up ideas about how fast you should be developing. I've been practicing the Dharma for eight years now. I've been practicing the Dharma for 28 years now. I've been on this retreat for three days, and by now I should have got to this point. Or I've been on this retreat for three years, and by now I should have got to this point. Uh, I, sometimes, I sometimes think, you know, at the beginning of a retreat, we should get everyone to write down what they hope to gain from the retreat and what they really want to see out of it. And then, in the evening puja, we should treat that as a confession and burn it. <laughs> because it really gets in the way. <laughs> Spiritual ambition sees things in terms of dhyanas and insights achieved, as if they were money in the bank, or like trophies and medals, forgetting that any insight or spiritual experience, however wonderful, is only a helpful memory unless it happens to be happening right now. If I had some wonderful insight, supposedly, during my long retreat, if I'm standing here thinking I am a person who had a wonderful insight during my long retreat, <laughs> what am I proud of? The past is gone. The past does not exist. I am proud of something that does not exist. That's ridiculous. The only benefit yeah. is that, okay, maybe it may give me a, a sense of how to get back to or forward to another kind of insight in the present moment now. Yeah. If I'm talking to you out of some degree of insight now, that's the only thing that's worth a can of beans. But I can, I can cling on to that insight in the past and preen myself about it. And that's, that's spiritual ambition. Spiritual ambition also covets spiritual experiences that it hasn't yet achieved. And, but it does it in a way that that stirs you up and excites the mind and makes their attainment much less likely. And the tendency to this whole trend of spiritual ambition can be very subtle indeed, as I discovered during my long retreat again and again and again. Lama Lundrup would, when I told him about some difficulty I was having, he would trace it back to some subtle version of this, and I think, no, it can't be that again. It's different this time. But he'd show me, no, and it would be. It would be the same thing. It, it was so humiliating, which was really very good. It was the point, really. As I mentioned, spiritual ambition produces willfulness or willed effort as a byproduct. But this willed effort is confounded and frustrated by just sitting which is a present moment experience with no aim, no goal, in which there's nothing to do. Just sitting leaves spiritual ambition squirming on its cushion. So it keeps interfering 
ostensibly to make things better, but actually because, with no future goal to aim for, no target to hit, spiritual ambition feels lost and under threat. I often think that the real difficulty with spiritual experience is that it's just too simple for us. And spiritual ambition can't cope with that. The ego can't cope with that. The ego thrives on drama, on stories, on complexity. It likes to build things up. But just sitting just gives it nothing to build with, nothing to build on. So it has to interfere in some kind of way to assert its own existence, even if that interference is very subtle. I find a good question to ask myself when I'm feeling like, oh, I really want to do something and change my experience in just sitting, is what's my objection to my present experience? So it's very important to be able to distinguish between genuine spiritual aspiration, which is a beautiful manifestation of spiritual receptivity, and spiritual ambition. They may use the same language, but they feel very different physically and emotionally. One's open and expansive, and the other is increasingly tense and frustrated and driven Drivenness is the real polar opposite of spiritual receptivity. The cock, the snake, and the pig at the heart of the wheel of life are driven. They're rushing onwards on the surface of experience, never really going anywhere different. Whilst open-hearted just sitting relaxes ever deeper into experience, into the flow of life, and becomes increasingly fulfilled by this ever-changing present moment. I find it interesting that in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha is represented as being totally motivated and committed at the time that he comes to sit under the Bodhi tree. His spiritual aspiration is such that he can say, flesh may wither, blood may dry up, but I shan't leave this spot until I'm enlightened. But then, in response to that total commitment, what happens? What comes up is a memory of something very natural, very easy and expansive. He finds himself back under the rose apple tree, as a young boy, watching his father plowing. And sometimes I've pondered, that experience seems to have been quite a key that opened things up for the Buddha, opened him up into the enlightened experience. So what is it about that? What was new about that memory which made it such a key for him? After all, also in the Jima Nikaya, is an account of Siddhartha leaving home and practicing under Alara Kalama and Uddhaka Ramaputta and getting into the formless jhanas. 
So what's different between that and this rose apple tree experience? If you've already had experience of the formless dhyanas, why was that such a, a big thing? So it seems to me that what was different was that in those earlier experiences of, the, of Siddhartha, there was still some spiritual ambition. Siddhartha is represented as comparing himself to his teachers, thinking, they have energy, I have energy. They have attained this, I can attain that. So as if he sets himself this goal, and I think there's, it's an ego goal, he still wants to attain what they have attained. So what was different and what was so helpful about his rose apple tree experience, that memory, wasn't that the experience was dhyanic. He'd experienced that before. What was different was that it was relaxed, open, and totally unforced. There was no spiritual ambition in it. That way of practicing was the key that he discovered. So we've seen Klesha soup just being carried off. We've seen overly interfering with, the, with just sitting. And there's one more pitfall, which I'll, I'll mention briefly, which we also need to take into account if we're going to practice. As we've seen, the practice is to turn towards and be receptive to our experience as it is, moment by moment. However, we're always seeing our experience through a filter of views and assumptions. And we're aware of this when we practice or we teach the mindfulness of breathing, that we need to help people to find their direct experience of the breath rather than their ideas about it. In a way, you could say the whole point of just sitting is to relax more and more into direct experience. But to do that, we have to keep noticing and questioning the assumptions that we're making about our experience. If we don't do this, then the practice will tend to reach a plateau. We'll get as far as we can doing the practice within the conceptual framework that we're using and all the filters that that brings to things. So the third pitfall is failing to peel back layers of assumptions that we're bringing to our experience, either because we don't notice them, or if we do notice them, because we just take them for granted. That's how life is. That's how everybody sees the world. For example, earlier I mentioned that as your experience of just sitting goes beyond what Subhuti calls just settling, you may find yourself in a phase of what he calls just waiting. Patiently attending to your experience until something deeper or more creative comes into play. However, if you think about it, to have an experience of just waiting, there have to be all kinds of underlying assumptions and concepts to produce that sense of just waiting. You need concepts about time and about a future 
in which something else more interesting can come about that you're waiting for. You also need a whole lot of concepts about depth of spiritual experience and a whole lot of comparisons in order to be able to do that. Without all those assumptions, without that whole superstructure of views and concepts, you wouldn't have any sense of just waiting. You'd already be there. Your experience, just as it is now, would be fulfilling. So, to summarize, just sitting is a central meditation or non-meditation in our Triratna system. And it needs to be included in our personal practice to some degree. For newer practitioners, I think its main place is as just settling. And as a way of savouring and absorbing the effects of some kind of structured, directed practice. For more experienced people, it's a very useful counterbalance to structured practice. And for some of us, for some more experienced people, it will be their meditation of choice. It will be your sadhana. However, I believe if you're going to focus on just sitting as a major practice, then it's best to do it within some kind of mentoring relationship. And I hope that we can develop these meditation mentoring relationships more and more as the order develops. A meditation mentor can help to identify and avoid the pitfalls of losing awareness and being carried along on the stream of habitual thinking, of interfering and tinkering inappropriately with the practice, and of not exploring the assumptions and the views, not looking at those, not seeing how they prevent us from getting close to direct experience. Obviously, I've hardly skimmed the surface of just sitting, and there's far more I could say. But I want to end with a couple of points about spiritual receptivity more generally. Firstly, I'd just like to remind you of something. I find a particularly helpful context for thinking about spiritual receptivity is Bhante's teaching on the greater mandala. You remember in Wisdom Beyond Words, in discussing the perfection of wisdom, the Ratnaguna Sanchaya Gata, he distinguishes between two ways of being, between what you could call an appropriative way and an appreciative way of functioning. The former is seeing things in terms of their use value. That is their use value for ourselves. Referring back to a sense of me to decide whether an experience will benefit or threaten the ego project or just be irrelevant to it. The alternative to this is a way of functioning in which we see things and people aesthetically, valuing them in and for themselves, appreciating them without that self-reference. And living in this appreciative way, he calls living in the greater mandala of complete uselessness, in which you're like some great tree, too big to be used. And Bhante suggests that 
your various activities, all those projects, then comprise a small corner of this spacious and expansive aesthetic mandala. Now, that greater mandala is the mandala of spiritual receptivity. People I know who first hear this teaching are usually very drawn to the idea of the greater mandala, but they're really drawn to it in theory. It's the practice that's difficult because they often relate to it in quantitative terms. My life is so busy and demanding. I've got work, I've got help with the center, I've got this, I've got that. How can I possibly make time to spend ages looking at nature or just doing nothing? But that misses the point. That really misses the point. Sure, if we really valued the greater mandala, if we really valued that way of practicing and experiencing, we'd probably manage to find some more time to do nothing, to just appreciate our experience. But fundamentally, entering the greater mandala isn't about time or any other quantity. It's about quality. It's about letting go of our small hopes and fears and opening our hearts, letting mind and body relax and appreciating life for itself. And you can do that sitting in a business meeting. You can do that in a traffic jam. You can do that listening to a talk on a busy order gathering. Maybe we should do it for a moment right now. As we're sitting here, let's just take a few seconds to do nothing at all. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, not having to be anyone special, just sitting appreciating. Appreciating the breath and the body, appreciating the colors in the room, maybe the presence of the other human beings around us. Hmm. In the midst of a busy life, you can even just take a few seconds. I often find it helpful. There's a, there's a traditional image for just sitting, which is where your mind is, you think of your mind as like a sheaf of hay, um, not one of those big kind of rolled up bales as we have around here, but where all the hay is sort of standing up, leaning against one another, and then it's bound up. So at a certain point, if you come along and you just cut the binding, the hay just falls. So again, you can just, in any moment, it's as if you just let go of that tension and that desire to do something, and you just let your mind fall open. Just for a few seconds, completely relaxed. Just let it all go. And in that time, you've entered into the greater mandala. 
So I want to end my talk by making a suggestion that I believe can help us to live more in the greater mandala. I want to suggest a change of emphasis in our discourse, a shift in the way some of us think. And I'm going to take my life in my hands and suggest that we make a slight shift in how we think about probably the most central concept that we use in Sri Ratna, which is going for refuge to the three jewels. Usually, or by and large, we talk of going for refuge as commitment to the three jewels. And that emphasis of Bante's on commitment has been tremendously helpful in bringing out certain aspects and implications of the act of going for refuge. It emphasizes that a Sangha isn't just a group of people interested in Buddhism, but a collection of individuals who are dedicated to practicing it. It also emphasizes the importance of the karmaniyam in spiritual life, that in order to transform ourselves, we need to act, we need to work with body, speech, and mind. However, without taking anything away from that at all, I believe we need to make more explicit a complementary emphasis, one that gives full expression to spiritual receptivity, one that encapsulates our openness to another way of being, to a non-egoic, dharma-niyama way of functioning. So personally, these days, as well as thinking in terms of going for refuge as commitment, I also often think of it as entrusting myself to the three jewels. And I don't just entrust myself, I entrust all my dharma work, all the situations in which I find myself, everything is entrusted to the three jewels. And that has the effect for me of taking the emphasis off myself. And I find it an especially good antidote to spiritual ambition and willfulness. It isn't about where I'm trying to get to by the end of my three-year retreat or whatever it may be. I've entrusted the whole three years retreat to the three jewels. I don't have to worry about where I get to. Seeing things in terms of entrusting yourself to the three jewels is also very helpful for counteracting anxiety, which personally seems to be my mental poison of choice. I've held a number of very responsible positions in Sri Ratna over the years. And sometimes, with hindsight, I can see that I took responsibility in a way that put too much weight on my own shoulders. I really cared about the Dharma. And so I wanted to do everything I could to help the center or the order or whatever the situation was that I was responsible for, to help it to be successful. But often, in taking that responsibility, I didn't find much equanimity because I felt that the success or failure of the situation was down to me. So I went up and down with the ups and downs of the situation, which didn't help me or it. However, let's suppose that in a position of responsibility, as well as committing myself to make my best efforts to help the situation, 
I also just entrust the whole situation to the three jewels. Now the weight has gone from my shoulders. I trust that whatever is for the best within the possibilities of the law of karma will happen. My focus is on the three jewels rather than on myself and how much I have to do. There's far more spiritual receptivity there and it's much easier for me to live within the greater mandala. So, just as we need both structured practice and just sitting, just as we need both to be active with the karma niyama and receptive to a dharma niyama way of functioning, in the same way I think it's helpful in our dharma lives to emphasize that going for refuge involves both committing ourselves as individuals and also entrusting ourselves to the three jewels. So I hope it's clear, at least I've given you some sense of what spiritual receptivity essentially is, that it's living or aspiring to live in the greater mandala, beyond the ego project of constant reference back to a self and its stories and demands. It's receptivity to all the richness and beauty that lies beyond the ego project in ethics, meditation, and wisdom. It's appreciating and enjoying life on its own terms, knowing that we belong to life. It doesn't belong to us. There's a little poem that Kamala Sheila wrote on our Total Immersion Retreat a couple of months ago that I feel captures something of the relaxed, open qualities of life in the greater mandala. It's called Holiday. Take a holiday. Take a holiday from being someone. Take a holiday from being somewhere. Take a holiday from it being a time. Take a holiday from it being now. Take a break from wanting things. A holiday from hopes. Let things not happen after all. Take a break from fearing things. Let the universe do what it pleases. It will anyway. <laughs> the universe is having a holiday. <laughs> Why not you? <laughs> so, I hope we can enjoy spending this weekend together in the greater mandala. Even if we have people to see and things to organize, even if our weekend is very full, we can still do things in an open, appreciative way. We can notice what's happening as we go through the different situations of the weekend, the times when we're more driven and the times when we're more open. We can feel the difference between the two in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. We can practice just sitting in the shrine room or just on a bench or under a tree somewhere, letting our experience be as it is, just turning towards our life with a kindly awareness, 
moment by moment, seeing it clearly, letting it arise and pass away. And we can take time at odd moments, standing in a dinner queue, brushing our teeth, to just let go of ourselves completely, like a sheaf of hay whose binding has been cut, to let all the thoughts and ideas, the hopes and fears of the ego project drop away. And for those moments at least, to feel the deep peace and fulfilment of being nobody, going nowhere, just experiencing in that simple but profound way. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 